Good morning. It is good to be here. And for those of you in New Milford and Waterbury and my special friends in Derby, I'm just welcoming you today. It's just a great privilege to be here. Are you enjoying the Advent season? Yeah, if you're like me, it's just a, well, I'm, I'm still trying to digest the turkey from Thanksgiving. It just seems to have happened so quickly. It's come on us so quickly. If you don't know or if you're new here, my name is Clay Norman. I serve as staff chaplain here at Walnut Hill. It's a privilege to work with the staff. And one of my great joys is I have the opportunity with lead pastor Craig Mowry to lead trips to Israel. The events of October 7th were really um, disheartening for us, to say the least. And we've been in contact with friends who live in Israel and our guide, and it's just, uh, it's been disheartening for them as well. We're still hoping, though, to take another trip back to Israel in June, in July, the end of June into July of this year, uh, this year, next year, 2024. And this trip is going to be unique because it's going to include four days in the country of Jordan. It's also known as the other biblical country. We, uh, I could talk all afternoon or all day about that, about my experiences in Israel, and we'll talk a little bit about that during the sermon today. But if you're interested in that trip, see me afterwards. I'd like to uh, talk to you about it. Are you ready for Christmas? Do you know that the average family in the U.S. spends about $1,000 on Christmas time? A majority of it on gifts. Our neighbors to the north are a little more generous than they are because they, send, they spend about $2,000 per family. Here in New England, we spend about $100 per person more than those in the South. The statistic that I read that really kind of disturbed me was is that it said that 96% of people give to their families. And why that disturbed me was is what about the other 4%? My heart went out to them because obviously there was some reason there. We are going to keep Santa Claus busy this year, I'm sure. Did you know that Santa Claus was a real person? No, I'm not talking about that jolly old fellow that comes down your chimney and leaves uh, presents and takes your cookies. I'm talking about someone that was born in the 300s in the country of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, in a, in a town of, called Patira. His given name was Nicholas, and he was born into a very wealthy family but his family died early and he was left alone. He apparently was a rather short man as he stood about five foot three inches tall. But he was a Christ follower and he became a bishop in the church. It's interesting though, he must have had a temper because at one of the church councils, he punched Arius in the face. Uh, Arius was a heretic. I guess he didn't like heretics. But anyway... It's interesting because Nicholas did suffer for his faith under Diocletian, one of the persecutions of the Roman emperors. And as after he died, his bones were actually stolen from Turkey and taken to Israel, not to Israel, to Italy. And the Catholic Church has sainted him today. As we know the tradition that we have of giving of gifts to one another, really comes out of Nicholas because he was very generous with his wealth and gave to others. But the modern day things that we, or how we celebrate in our culture, really comes out of the Netherlands and Germany at a much later time in the 14th and 15th century. 
But enough about Santa Claus and St. Nicholas. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful during this time of year that we can celebrate the birth of your son in the small town of Bethlehem. We rejoice that we can have a relationship with that tiny infant. Help us understand more of the journey that his mother Mary and Joseph, his father, were on. A winding way in a somber land, oppressed by a darkening sky, an honest doubt in the searching heart where the way of truth may lie. Tis ever the same in flight and life, for he who would set a goal must pay the price of loneliness that harrows his very soul. And often the goal, itself attained, in terms of gain assured, is less the worth to the pilgrim heart than the loneliness endured. I could go on. It was a poem that I memorized when I was in my early teen years. I was wondering what I was going to do. What kind of journey did God have me on? And I guess that poem caught my attention because it talks about in flight or life. I had an interest in aviation and airplanes. They were my fascination. And so I think it kind of drew me in. And I can still quote almost the the whole poem even to this day, although it's been many years ago that I memorized it. Joseph and Mary were on a similar journey. They were residents of Nazareth. And now because of the census, they were required to travel to Bethlehem, a journey of about 70 miles if they went the shortest distance. Mary was uh, exceptional because as we talked about last week, she had walked from Nazareth to Ein Karim, which is just about five miles west of Jerusalem, so about 70 miles as well if she went the, the shortest distance. And then she would have turned around and walked back to Nazareth after she had spent some months with Elizabeth. And now here, she and her new husband were on their way back down to Bethlehem. It was a journey. Most of our Christmas cards show Mary riding on a donkey. Now, I've not been pregnant, but I know that if you are pregnant, you probably don't want to sit on the back of a bouncing donkey for 70 miles. I also don't think that Mary uh, and Joseph were wealthy enough to have a donkey. The reason I say that is is that 40 days after uh, Jesus' birth, they were in the temple, and they were to offer a purification sacrifice, and by rights, that should have been a lamb. But we know from Scripture that they offered two doves, which was the minimum. They were poor. I'll destroy one other Christmas tradition as well, and it's probably that Joseph and Mary didn't arrive the day of Jesus' birth. They may have arrived a day or a few days, or maybe a few weeks prior, but I won't destroy any more of the Christmas story. I'll let you enjoy it. They had to go to Bethlehem because they were both of the the lineage of David. David was in their line of of, uh, ancestry. Bethlehem was the burial place of their matriarch, um, Rachel. It was also, as we know it, the hometown of David, the king. And Micah, the prophet, said it was the smallest among the families of Judea. So it wasn't a very important town. The name Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. 
Bethlehem sits on a narrow ridge, and just to the east of it, there is an area that is perfect climate-wise for the growing of wheat and barley. So probably Bethlehem supplied the wheat and the barley for Jerusalem, which was just five miles north for the bread. Interestingly enough, in Arabic, the name Bethlehem also means house of meat. And just to the southeast of Bethlehem was an area in which sheep were raised, and particularly those lambs that were used for the sacrifice in the temple. So the Lamb of God was born in the house of bread, in the house of meat. They were there, as I said, because of a census. Mary and Joseph, like us, are all on a journey. There's something in our lives that takes us along through life. There's a Bantu proverb that says, people get to know one another when traveling. Now I want to use your sanctified imagination for a moment. As Mary and Joseph traveled south, I can imagine that Mary looked at Joseph because they hadn't been in relationship um, as husband and wife for much more than probably six months, if not, if that long. <clears throat> I can imagine Mary turning to Joseph and says, Mary, or Joseph, tell me why you didn't divorce me. You see, when Mary was found to be pregnant, that would have been the right thing for Joseph to do. In fact, according to the law, she was to be stoned because she was an adulteress. We know from history that that penalty wasn't carried out very often, but it still was the penalty. In, in divorcing her and exposing her to public ridicule, what Joseph would have been doing was vindicating himself and putting Mary in a very difficult position as a single mom in that culture. But we know that Matthew records that Joseph was a righteous man, so he had options. His options were none of them really good for Mary, only one good for him, and that was to divorce because then people wouldn't wag, their tongues wouldn't wag about him being the father of the, of the child. His second option was to divorce quietly or to, uh, to put her away privately. And that would have left Mary still in a very uncomfortable position because she would have still been a single mom. And it would have left Joseph in an uncomfortable position too because people would have always wondered, is it him? Did he? And so he wouldn't be vindicated. But we know that there was one other option, and it was this option that Joseph chose, and that was to marry Mary. Now that is going to get confusing if I'm not careful. Matthew says, Joseph, her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her on public display, decided to divorce her quietly. That was the journey that Joseph was on, but we know that Joseph, as he thought about his options, was visited by an angel because God had a different plan. God had someone, some journey for him that was different than divorce. It was also a journey that would involve people, their tongues wagging throughout Jesus' lifetime. We know that from Scripture. I can imagine Joseph turning to Mary and said, Mary, the reason I didn't divorce you is I thought about the prophet Micah 
And I remembered this verse. The Lord has told me what is good and what it is that he requires of me to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. You see, Joseph was a righteous man. And he knew that by giving mercy to Mary, he was doing something that made their journey a lot more peaceful. And that's true for us, too, as we show mercy to one another on our journeys. It becomes a much peace, more peaceful journey. I can only imagine Mary turning to Joseph and saying, or I'm sorry, Joseph turning to Mary and saying, tell me again how you were feeling, what it was like for an angel to come to you and tell you that you were going to become pregnant because you were a virgin. I know, we know from Scripture that probably her first response was fear. And the reason I say that is because when the angel showed up, his first words are, don't fear. But it was astonishment. And then acceptance. I love the way A.W. Tozer puts it. He says, I will follow no matter the cost. I will take the cross no matter how it comes. And we know that it did come in Mary's life in the form of the crucifixion of her son. Mary had an incredible grasp of the scriptures. We know that from what we learned last week. When she came to Elizabeth's house and then we, what we now know as the Magnificat, her song, it was filled with allusions of scripture, the Jewish scriptures, at least 35 that they've counted. She knew scripture. And as she thought about Joseph's question, what was it like? She may have thought back to one of her ancestors who was also on a difficult journey to Bethlehem. I'm speaking of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi and her husband Elimelech had lived in Bethlehem with their two sons and a famine came into the land of Judea and they left to go to Moab because Moab across the Dead Sea in modern day Jordan had food. They lived there approximately two years and then Elimelech and her two sons died. And they had, the two sons had married in Moab to Moabite women. Ruth said, don't come with me. I'm going back home because there's food in Bethlehem now. Orpah decided to stay in Moab. But Ruth said, no, I will come with you. And we get that famous passage, which is often read at weddings. It says, don't ask me to leave you or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. There didn't seem to be a good ending to these two widows. They knew that as they headed back, there was very few options, very good options for them. In fact, we know that when they arrived back in Bethlehem, the women of Bethlehem said, oh, it's Naomi. They were excited. But here's my, Naomi's response. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? She was bitter. Her journey had not been easy. But what she saw as bitterness 
God saw as an amazing plan, an amazing opportunity, because we know that it was from the offspring of Ruth that we have King David, and that we also then, many years later, have Joseph and Mary. God had provided for them in their hopelessness. Have you been on a journey like that? It may seem distressing, impossible, unfortunate. It may not have been on your own, even of your own desires. It may have been foisted on you by someone else. From the outside, it doesn't look good. And from the inside, it, doesn't, it looks terrible. But I'm here to tell you that like Mary and Joseph, and like Ruth and Naomi, God is with you on your journey. I began this year in good health. I expected to arrive at today, December 17th, in reasonably good health as well. I work out, I eat reasonably well, maybe a little bit too much, but I eat reasonably well. But in February, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. By the end of April, it was removed. And I'm given a 15% chance that cancer will return. I didn't think it was a fair thing. I wasn't happy about the diagnosis. In fact, I can tell you very honestly that uh, now that we can see on your tablet or your phone uh, the results of the lab tests, uh, I got a notice from Quest saying that there was my lab tests were available. And as I was walking to the computer so I could pull up the, the results, I had a real debate with God going on. I told him, I said, I didn't want, I wanted it to be benign. And I told him, I said, I'm scared. And I finally told him, I said, Father, I can't do anything about this, but I'm trusting you. And when I told him that, he provided me a sense of peace. And yes, the diagnosis was cancer, but he had me on a journey. And the reason I'm telling you that is because after I was diagnosed with it and had my prostate removed, a good friend of mine was also diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I was able to help him walk through his diagnosis and then his subsequent journey. And I continue to this day to pray for him. You see, Paul talks about it in the, in the letter to the Corinthians. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others when they are troubled. We will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. I didn't know that I would be able to comfort because of a cancer diagnosis until after I'd walked through my journey and I was able to do it. I'm sure that Joseph and Mary, as they walked south, they talked about what it was going to be like to raise the Son of God. It wasn't a comfortable journey for them, but God was walking with them so that they could enjoy his presence as they trusted him. And that's what I have to do with my cancer diagnosis. Every three months I go for a blood check now, and I still wait to see what Quest sends me after that blood check. I have to trust God is doing something in my life as he is in your life as well. And that's what Joseph and Mary had to do. As we trust him 
on the road that he has put us on to travel, we can do it fearlessly because he is with us. St. Bernard in the 12th century said that there are really three miracles of Christmas. The first is that God and man would be joined in a child. The second is, is that, a vir- that a woman would bear a son and still be a virgin. And the third miracle was is that Mary should have such faith as to believe that this mystery would be accomplished in her. It was a mystery that she had to trust God for. This miracle that she was carrying was born in an unassuming family, in an unconventional dwelling, in a very insignificant village, in an unremarkable town. Beyond expectations, he came to serve, not to be served. He was a humble king. He was a suffering servant. You see, as Mary and Joseph walked south, Mary, being pregnant with the bread of life, was carrying that bread of life to the house of bread. He, they were on a journey that God had put them on. What's your journey today like? Does it seem to have no end? No relief? No rest stop? Recently, a friend of mine who's in ministry and teaching on a very difficult, very contemporary subject told me about the situation in their home. As they began teaching on this topic, his wife became sick for over a month. His daughter developed a very unusual medical symptoms that included low low blood sugar and an unexplained rash. Their cars kept breaking down. They had to replace, or they had, their furnace in their house broke down twice in a month. Their oil tank had to be removed, and their appliances kept breaking down. They continued, in spite of what seemed like coincidences, they continued to trust God in what they were doing, and that they were, he was walking with them. As a side note, he asked the elders to come and pray for them. And after the elders came and prayed, a number of those things just seemed to disappear because they put their faith in God. God is using that, my friend, in powerful ways, and there will be pushback. The journey that he's on is not an easy one. Your journey, my journey, as we look to faith in God, may be rocky and steep, may be dangerous, but God is walking with us in the same way that he walked south from Nazareth to Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph. That journey, I think, and I I know, changed Mary and Joseph as they took every step towards their future, which was very uncertain. Has your journey changed you? Or has it made you bitter and angry and resentful because of what's happened to you? God wants you to trust, put your faith and your trust in him in such a way that you know he's walking with you in the middle of those tough things. Mary and Joseph's life were altered by that journey. We know that it wasn't going to be easy because 40 days after they, uh, the birth of Jesus, they were back in the temple. And there they met two prophets, Anna and Simeon. And Simeon said some amazing things about the baby. 
But then he turned to Mary and he said, he will pierce, or the circumstances of his life will pierce your heart. And we know that happened 30-some years later when Jesus was crucified. I hope you realize that God wants to walk with you. There is no way you can escape him. Let me conclude by reading a couple of verses from the 139th Psalm in uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I get back. I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me and you're there. Then up ahead and you're there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. This is too much. Too wonderful for me. I can't take it all in. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit? To be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. Let's pray. Father, with Jeremiah we pray. I know, Lord, that a person's life is not his own. No one is able to plan his own course. So correct me, Lord. But please be gentle. Do not correct me in anger, for I would die. You are my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. Lord of hosts, you are with us. You are our refuge. Thanks be to God. We offer this prayer in the name of Christ Jesus.